This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. From having written about a number of people who've done things that are way over the line, they almost always find a way to justify it to themselves and to hide it from themselves. So, I mean, I think to this day, Clarence Thomas probably thinks he was deeply wronged and that he never said those things to Anita Hill. On May 7th, Jane Mayer and Ronan Farrow published a story in The New Yorker detailing New York Attorney General Eric Schneiderman's history of sexually and and psychologically terrorizing the women he dated. Hours later, the New York governor, Andrew Cuomo, he called on Schneiderman to resign. Hours after that, Schneiderman stepped down. Journalism comes in many forms, and it has many uses, but the most honored and necessary form is a form that Jane Mayer excels at, investigative journalism, the revelation of what the powerful do not want us to know so that we may, as a citizenry, hold them accountable so that we can protect ourselves. Over the years, Mayer's done more than anyone else to map the Koch brothers' influence on the Republican Party. She has added immeasurably to our understanding of America's torture programs, to our knowledge of Anita Hill's allegations against Clarence Thomas, to our understanding of Donald Trump and Michael Pence and the influence that financiers like Robert Mercer have on this administration. She's won more awards than I can count, and she's deserved them all. I've known Mayer for years, and I've always wanted to know how she does what she does. How she breaks stories on everything from waterboarding in Iraq to sexual deviancy in the New York government. But I've never gotten a chance for you to sit down and ask her. That is in, until now. Of course, if there's anything you want to sit down and ask me, you can email me at EzraKleinShowAdVox.com. You see that smooth transition, how I did that? I hope you've sat down and watched Vox's new Netflix show, Explained. Uh, a lot of my work is going into that these days, and I would love to know what you think of it. But for now, please enjoy this conversation with The New Yorker's Jane Mayer. Jane Mayer, welcome to the podcast. Great to be with you. So you are one of the really great investigative reporters of our age. And so I wanted to ask you this question to begin. What is investigative reporting? What makes it different than normal reporting? I, I Actually, I have to tell you, I don't think it is different. Um, I just think it's it's taking longer, but doing what every reporter ought to be doing anyway. It's um, so I, I I don't I just define myself as a reporter, not a particularly investigative one, just one that's dogged and maybe slow. Was there a moment in your career when you started being called an investigative reporter? 
Yeah, more the last few years. I, I mean, I would say the place where I departed from the the rest of the the polite press corps was a long time ago, and it was when I was a White House reporter for the Wall Street Journal and covering Reagan. And we were all sitting there doing what we were supposed to do. We thought taking notes basically about what, yeah, you know, it's like stenography being in the White House press corps. And one day, Edwin Meese, who was the attorney general, came in, and he let us know that while we'd been sitting there like dopes taking notes, there'd actually been an incredible story unfolding, and they'd been caught, and they had to admit it, and it was the Iran-Contra affair. And I thought, well, what are we? What have we been doing? Sitting here listening to these pronouncements from Reagan, saying that he would never, you know, trade money for hostages, and meanwhile they had a huge covert program doing exactly that. And so I took a leave of absence at that point from the Wall Street Journal and sort of stopped the clock, got a great co-author, Doyle McManus from the LA Times. And the two of us spent six months reporting and writing a book, which became Landslide. And it was the backstory, the real story of what was going on. And so that's kind of the beginning of it. And what are the tools you employed for that book? What, what did you do? You know, I don't really think it's any different. I, I just interviewed everybody who I could get to speak to me. I mean, people don't remember this anymore, but the aides around President Reagan, a lot of them thought he was losing his marbles at that point. And what, the biggest story that came out of that book was that the aides around Reagan considered invoking the 25th Amendment because they were afraid that he was on the edge of becoming incompetent. And they actually had a meeting where they put him through his strokes and asked him questions to see if he could answer them, to see whether they need to move forward with that plan. And and I got that story um, I hate to tell you, but and I've never told this, but I got that story by going to a cocktail party and talking to people there. And one of the people was Ben Bradley, the editor of the Washington Post, the fabled editor. And he said, hey, kid, you know, there's a guy you got to talk to. I hear some crazy things were going on in the White House. And I went and followed up with that guy. And his name was James Cannon. And he was the aide in the White House who'd been brought in to try to figure out whether or not the 25th Amendment should be invoked. So a lot of it is just talking to people, just constantly, you know, pushing and nudging and listening and that kind of thing. You so often report on stories on people where a lot of the key decision makers don't want to talk to you when you report on torture, presumably when you're reporting on whether or not the president uh, has gone senile. How do you persuade people to talk to you? How do you persuade them to give you a story that may end up harming them or putting them in danger or certainly harming a, a cause or an administration that they're devoted to? I think the truth is that most people really want to talk. And it's just a matter of of appealing to their higher instincts, really. Most people, particularly in politics, are interested in history and they want the historic record to be right. And they're seeing things often that they're upset about. And they they want to tell the truth. I mean, they really do. There's no special, like, you, you have to be very careful never to make some kind of promise you can't keep or to use deceit or anything like that. I always assume every single thing I ever say to anybody I'm reporting on could be public. So there's no special little, you can't be sneaky about it. But actually, a lot of people just want to 
they want to tell their story. They're they're involved in politics because they want to be part of history. They want to shape history, and they want to and and they want it to be known. And so you appeal to that. I mean, to go back to the story of the the Twenty Fifth Amendment. I mean, part one was hearing that this was really something that happened. The second part was convincing James Cannon to tell me about it, not just tell me about it once. I went back to his house, and I spent hours with him over and over, and I went over his account to the point where I, I he had actually kept a diary, and I got him to read the diary. And so by the time that prologue came out in that book, every word in it about the 25th Amendment had been so carefully checked with him and gone over and over and, and and the color of it and the fact that he was in his pajamas when he went and checked the Constitution to look at the 25th Amendment. All, all of that was in there. And that's that's the extra thing that really matters, which is just getting every little human detail. So when a reader reads it, the hair stands up on their head. When you are thinking about which story to do next, because you, you've covered such a wide range from torture to the, the Eric Schneiderman story you just did to the Koch brothers, do you begin because you've had a break with a source or a break with information or do you begin with I'm interested in this and I'm going to figure it out? Kind of all of the above. I mean, I think right now, I mean, this is a really target-rich environment for investigative reporting and it's it's gotten more and more so every moment because – and I'm not talking just about the fact that, that Trump is our president. I'm talking about what's happening in the media world. Right now, the media sphere is moving at such a, a rapid rate that there's so much information coming at people in so many sort of broken up little bits that people can't make sense of it. And and so it's a perfect time to do what investigative reporters do, which is sort of stop the clock, get off, go back, get the story behind the story – and and explain the connections between things. I mean, it's not unlike what you do at Vox, where what you're trying to do is have these explainers, because of the sense that that people can't quite figure out what the connections are between everything. And and that's a lot of what I do, I think, is more explanatory journalism than something called investigative journalism. It's It's also, I spend a lot of time trying to figure out who the people are, because what's what what disappears in Twitter, and a lot of online journalism are the characters and 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 readers are really interested in human beings and the characters that are having massive effects on our political lives and, and our lives in general. Yet you don't really – you can't follow them unless someone goes back and tries to explain, well, where did they grow up? Uh, wh- where did Robert Mercer come out of? Where did the Cokes come out of? What test tube did they grow up in that, that brought them into this thing where they're changing our politics from this wild angle? When you're reporting on somebody like Robert Mercer, who he knows and the people around him know the work you've done on the Cokes, they know that you are probably not – friendly to their agenda or friendly to the way money is being used to influence the American government. How do you get people around them to talk to you such that you can have an accurate sense of their motivations and their story? Well, so in that case, Mercer did not speak to me. He very, very I – I think he's given maybe you know one or two interviews in his life. He just is the most private person and it was sort of a foregone conclusion. He'd never speak to me. But the thing about people – is that they weave paths through their whole lives. They touch so many different people along the way. 
And especially if they're unusual people, they've left a lot of people. They've left a big impression on a lot of people. So so really part of it is just simply going back over their path and trying to figure out who, who would they have known. And then you create a list of 100 people from the start to call. And you ask each one of them, well, who else should I call? Who knew him well? And so you go down this list. The other thing I do that is really... Um, I think a huge help to investigative reporting and really any reporting is I create chronologies. And so on something like my book, Dark Money, and also with The Dark Side, um, the book about torture, I had a chronologies in each case that were maybe 300 or 400 pages long. And what you do when you create a chronology is you see the connections between things that you hadn't seen before. And, 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 and there are always these amazing connections. Oh, so that's why somebody did this, because the next day he did that. So you can see it if you put it all together, and the story almost tells itself. Tell me more about what you mean when you say creating a chronology. I think that's something that, that a lot of reporters feel like we do, but I get the sense that at least I don't do it in the way you do it. So so when you say you have a three to 400-page chronology, I assume this is not the published um, book. No. What does it look like? What are you What are a you mess. looking at? <laughs> is it index cards? I mean, do you, no, are you it's like online. is it like Avon Barksdale is at the top of a thing on your wall? <laughs> Sometimes, I mean, it, it looks a little bit like um, the crazy person in a beautiful mind um, <laughs> with charts up on the walls. Sometimes that's what, at least that's what the following the money looked like in the in Dark Money. But no, it's 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 literally chronological, starting with. You know, it could be anything going back to the 1880s with the Coke book, trying to figure out what happened with the robber barons and then looking on up through the progressive era. But but that would be just a, a quick line or two in each of those. But then you get into entries following really literally sometimes day by day in what's happening in debates and in their lives. And it's biography for them. Uh, it's politics. You can sort of see how everything intersects. Um, it's links to stories that are part of it. And so, I mean, and even to take a really easy case, take take the Schneiderman story most recently. I mean, part of what I needed to do was just figure out which girlfriend came when so you could sort of line them up and see what the progression was. And then what was he saying about women's issues in between each of these episodes which was just chilling because what he was doing was introducing legislation that would make strangulation a crime, a serious crime in New York State, at the same time, very much at the same time that one of the people he was dating who I was interviewing was saying that he had choked her. Um, and choking is, you know, sort of a more colloquial name for strangulation. So it was, you know, you put those things up against each other and you can see a story coming together. I want to move to, to Schneiderman in, in just one one second. But but one more thing on the chronology. Is this a is this physical paper you were laying out and manipulating in front of you? Do you use a, a program? I'm very curious what this actually looks like for you. I mean, if only I were better online, I'm sure there's some kind of wonderful app for it. But it's just plain a word document, which is dates, you know, dates. And I just underline the, the dates and then put the stuff in and then, you know, keep moving forward in time. So there's somebody who works at Vox who who helped me work on Dark Money, Andrew Prokop, mm-hmm. and he he could he could describe what a disaster it looked like. But it, it's amazingly helpful in storytelling because 
I actually learned this from the first book editor I had, someone named John Sterling, which is there's a kind of a propulsive um, interest that we all have in finding out the simple question of what happened next. And when you're trying to turn a story into a narrative that people want to turn the page you know, each page and find out what happened next. You just have to create that momentum and follow the narrative. And it just, it becomes naturally a thriller. Um, and so you've got to sort of figure out what that narrative line is. And, and people just want to know what happened next. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea? Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc., So the Schneiderman story, but let's start there. You did that story with Ronan Farrow. How did that become a story? What happened that led to that becoming a story you were working on? So, I mean, that was an unusual story for me, actually, because it came to me without my asking for it. Tanya Selvarotnam, one of the women who had dated Schneiderman, had friends at The New Yorker, and she told one of her friends all about what had happened. And the friend told the editor at The New Yorker, David Remnick, who then said to me, I want you to look into this. And I, I kind of dragged my feet, actually, in the very beginning. But I, so I set a fairly high bar. I didn't think it would be a story just to have one woman with a really bad experience. And I thought even two women with a bad experience would be questionable. And if we were going to take on the attorney general of New York State – we had to have a case that people didn't sort of say, oh, he said, she said, it's either here or there, or maybe people are misinterpreting it. I thought it had to be just an ironclad case. So from the start, I said to the first woman when I finally spoke with her, I'm going to see if I can find at least three women, and I'd like them to be on the record. And if we can get that, I think we might have a story. But otherwise, I also felt it was partly on behalf of the women that they were risking a lot if they came forward on the record and they didn't have a really ironclad case. You're aiming at somebody with an awful lot of power. He could fire back and really hurt their reputations and demean them in some way. And you know, the reason maybe I was sensitive to this was many years ago I covered Anita Hill's accusations against Clarence Thomas, and what happened to her was pitiful. I mean, she was just made into some kind of cartoon character who was described as suffering from erotomania, 
And it was so painful to watch what happened to her. I didn't want that to happen to these women. And, 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 I, and I know it can happen. So I, I set this bar saying, okay, we're going to have to find three at, at the minimum. How did you find the other women? Well, the incredible thing was it wasn't very hard. And That's chilling, actually. <laughs> so, which makes me think that this was, again, a real story. If you can find that many people that fast, and it only took a matter of weeks, then you can be pretty certain that there's a real pattern here. And it's probably larger than the one I reported on. So, so one led to another. The first woman... It was a crazy coincidence. The person at the New Yorker who was her friend, who'd helped her clean out her stuff from the Schneiderman apartment where she'd been living with him a lot of the time, that woman, who's a Jennifer Gonnerman, a reporter at the New Yorker and a great reporter, said to this the ex-girlfriend of Schneiderman, you can't be the only one. Who else do you think he dated? This can't have happened just to you. And the ex-girlfriend, Tanya, said... Well, I think he dated another woman I've heard of and described her. And the very next day, Jennifer Gonnerman was out in the park in Brooklyn, and she bumped into someone who worked in the same place as the this second woman and said to that person, hey, I understand you know someone you work with who may have dated Eric Schneiderman. And she was very careful to not sort of overly wait the question in some way that would tip the the answer. And she just sort of said coolly, so how did that work out? And the person she was talking to said, oh, you mean other than the the slapping and spitting and choking? And, and so they realized right on the spot, they've got two women who've had similar bizarre and, and, and scary experiences with Eric Schneiderman. So this was in a, a this was Jennifer Gonnerman who who knew the first woman speaking to a coworker of the second woman. Exactly. Who was just a family friend of hers. Wow. It just it was just a coincidence. And so at that point she Jennifer Gonnerman connected these two women a little bit online and and carried back a message from girlfriend number 2 who had dated Eric Schneiderman before Tanya and the message was you're not alone. And and that was a very important message for Tanya to hear because she had felt that it was something she'd done maybe. She just had no sense that this was a pattern of activity. She was going out with a man who was known as a super champion of women and a feminist and everything, and yet he had started to hit her, slap her in bed, choke her, demean her. She has brown skin because she's originally from Sri Lanka. Say, you're my my brown slave. You're my property. These things that were horrifying to her. And she thought maybe it was because of who she was. And suddenly she realizes there's another woman who who went through similar things. And and so they struck up a relationship. You you were saying earlier that part of the work you do is is, is deeply explanatory. And, and I agree. And one of the reasons I... I was so admiring of that piece as I am of so much of your work is that it was a tremendous portrait of abuse and not just physical abuse, not just sexual abuse, but the psychological terrorism that so often characterizes it, the way in which he made people feel small and afraid and that maybe this was all on them. Maybe it was something that they were asking for. 
that had to have been it, it seems to me just a very difficult story to report emotionally. Well, thanks, Ezra. I, 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 it was one of the questions I had was in writing it was how much of the psychological abuse to include. Because, again, I wanted to do something with this story that people would say that is definitely abuse, not something that's a gray area. So when a man demeans a woman and tells her, you know, you should get breast implants, as he did to one of them, or just, or you've got fat ankles, as he did to another one, things like that, that could be just a jerky boyfriend. And so I didn't want people to read it and say, oh, well, you know, he sounds like a jerk, but that's just like, you know, any kind of jerky guy. So it was a, a question of, of, of how much of that to put in there. And the reason we wound up using a lot of it was as I kept interviewing these women, and there, there were four of them in this story, the pattern was so pronounced that it became freaky and and incredibly disturbing because you would hear the same lines. These women didn't even know each other. They'd been dating him at different periods, and he would say just almost precisely the same thing to them. Two of them had the experience of sitting there watching TV with him on a couch and him reaching for their legs and squeezing part of it and saying, it looks chunky or chubby. And they were both, by that point, they'd both lost huge amounts of weight to the point that one of them had her hair falling out because it was so unhealthy. And you could sort of see bones sticking out in her, her, her breastbone sticking out. And, and they were being made to feel that they were fat. And the stuff he was saying was exactly the same lines or that he was forcing them almost to drink alcohol with him. And each one of them he gave a little demeaning nickname to. It was Boo Boo was one of them. And and he would hold a lemonade-sized glass, several of them described, full of alcohol, you know, liquor, either hard liquor or just wine, but a huge glass of it, hold it up to their mouth and say, drink, boo-boo, drink, boo-boo. You're going to drink your liquor, boo-boo. And I've been hearing this from woman after woman, and it, it added so much to the credibility of their stories, too, because they all had the same story. It made it clear it was him, not them. It's funny, even having read this, just hearing you recount that part of it, that the drink up boo-boo stuff is so, it's it's genuinely chilling. Do you think that even now, Eric Schneiderman in his heart of hearts knows he abused women? Or do you think he has persuaded himself this was all consensual sex play or something? Do do, do you think he is somehow still the hero of his story? My guess, and I was not able to interview him, but his lawyers talked to our lawyers at The New Yorker and, and His first reaction before reading the piece, but just hearing about it, was that he was completely baffled and completely innocent. And my guess from having written about a number of people who've done things that are way over the line is that they almost always find a way to justify it to themselves and to hide it from themselves. I thought when I was (laughs) going to become a reporter that somehow if you busted people doing the wrong thing that you would find them in the back room kind of um, scheming and rubbing their hands together and saying, oh, we got away with it. But in fact, the big surprise about this kind of reporting is that people almost never really admit it. 
even to themselves. So, I mean, I think to this day, Clarence Thomas probably thinks he was deeply wronged and that he never said those things to Anita Hill. Yet, having interviewed so many people who know Clarence Thomas and heard him say so many things exactly like what he said to Anita Hill, I have no doubt he said those things to Anita Hill. But I make you bet that he thinks he is the victim. And I wouldn't be surprised if, on some level, Eric Schneiderman thinks he's the victim. Though he has kind of admitted to some of these women in in moments that he's a troubled man. And I think he knows that. There is, for the book I'm working on, I'm spending a lot of time diving into political psychology and motivated reasoning and the ways in which we convince ourselves of what we we need to believe and how powerful that process is. And I find it just as a reporter to be a disorienting thing to know because it means that the testimony people are giving me, even when they are not lying, is often not true. And, and obviously, I'm not the first to discover this. This is a very old, um, uh, a very old truth about human nature. But I'm curious about how you think about that in your own work. The fact that Clarence Thomas might both be lying and persuaded of his lying, and 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 how that impinges on our responsibility as journalists to try to to try to listen to the arguments people are making and believe that they believe them, even as we may know that they are self-deluding. I think, you know, as a reporter, you have to try very hard to get their story, even if it is a lie they're telling themselves. I mean, it's very important to me to try to reach out to everybody. And I and I was sorry in the case of both in the, in the Schneiderman story and in the Clarence Thomas case, neither of them spoke to me. But I, in, in particularly, in, I mean, the, the Clarence story was part of a book, so I had a lot more time to work on it. And I made a huge effort to try to speak to all the people who knew him through his life, including his mother. And I went down to the, the tiny town in Pinpoint, Georgia, where he grew up and try to get to everybody. So you sort of try to understand their reality. But in the end of the day, I mean, I'm pretty tough about this. In the end of the day, there's only one story that's true. I don't think life is a Rashomon. I think either it happened or it didn't happen. And either Clarence Thomas said those things or he didn't say those things. Either these women gave their consent to Eric Schneiderman or they did not give their consent. And it's our job as a reporter, just as it's like a jury's job, to figure out what's true. And you do everything you can. You get the evidence. I mean, you've got to be open-minded to any possibility, but you've got to get whatever evidence you can possibly get. In the case of the Schneiderman story, he said he had consent from these women. There's a lawyer in this story who's described in the end who simply went to what she thought was an after party with him. And after a moment or two of making out, he started saying these things to her that she found just repellently demeaning about how career women just need a man to take command and that's what they really want and started calling her I think a whore and and she like sort of drew back from him and this was just plain I mean they did not have a romantic relationship this was just like something that was just developing and he just pulled back 
and hit her so hard across the face twice. Just She said, he just smacked me. And so you could say, okay, maybe that's true and maybe that's not true. But my job was to say, well, is there any evidence of that? And there was. There's a photograph. She took a photograph and shared it with her friends. And the, the friends saw it and we interviewed them. She also had a photograph that was just taken accidentally the next day at a birthday party where if you enlarge the picture of her cheek, you can see the raised lines, the white lines across her face where she was hit that are sort of the outlines of somebody's hand. So it seems impossible to believe that Eric Schneiderman got the consent of this woman to hit her so hard across the face that she had a visible wound of it the next day. Here's a question that I I find uh, unnerving to contemplate. New York has had a series of very high-profile, publicly feminist male politicians, Spitzer, Wiener, and now Schneiderman, who turned out in different ways, and I don't want to compare what they did, what Spitzer did seems to have largely been consensual, if illegal, whereas Wiener's stuff was stranger and Schneiderman's was non-consensual. But all of it was pretty deviant. And I don't know whether there is something that is very strange about New York democratic politics or it is that New York has a very high concentration of media figures who can report on these folks and the the people in it are under more scrutiny, so so more of their misdeeds come out. Do you think there is something strange about New York or do you think this is what is <laughs> happening everywhere and, and we just don't have as many resources focused in on, you know, Oklahoma politics? I my guess is it's the latter, I have to say. That, you know, and as we've seen there are issues in in Missouri with the Governor Greitens and there's there were issues in Alabama with more it's a matter of attention, I think, and, and, and shining a light on it. And it probably is just a reflection of the fact that the media is better in New York. And so people are watching more closely. Also, I mean, face it, in the last couple of years, there's been um, more of a consciousness that this is really wrong and so that women come forward and talk about it. And so it may say more about the women in New York that feel that they can – speak out about some of this. Though, I, I, you know, that's more in the case of Schneiderman. I think in the case of, if you think about Elliot Spitzer, it was involving prostitutes, and they were, they were not the complainants, I don't think. And, and in, the, in the Wiener case, each one is strangely different and fascinating, but I do think it's probably more a matter of the media. And I hate to say it, I imagine if the media was this good in every other state, you'd be hearing a lot more about it everywhere. You, you brought up the ways in which we're also in a different age. You wrote, as you mentioned, a book on the Anita Hill, Clarence Thomas case. If Clarence Thomas had been nominated to the court in 2018 and Anita Hill had come forward with her accusations, do you think the end result would have been different? Totally. He would never have been confirmed this year. I am absolutely positive of it. People who had so much lesser 
charges made against them have had their careers completely wrecked. And he was the head of the EEOC, which is supposed to, you know, safeguard workplaces against sexual harassment. And there were women who were working for him who said he was sexually harassing them, including Anita Hill. And the thing was, she wasn't the only one. And when I look back at that case, what I think is really important is that at the time it took place, Joe Biden a Democrat, was on the the Senate Judiciary Committee, and he pretty much effectively suppressed information about other women that would have allowed the country to see that there was a pattern there. And it was, again, it was a, a completely different consciousness. He was uncomfortable with the story. Ted Kennedy, who was on the Judiciary Committee, was uncomfortable with the the narrative, too, having so many accusations about him and women. It just was a different world then. And and today, I I really don't think Clarence Thomas could ever have been confirmed. I want to take a a turn now into another strain of your reporting over the past couple of years, which is around dark money and the Koch brothers and the Mercers and Republican politics. And I'm someone, and I'll, I'll lay these cards out on the table at the front, who is often skeptical that much of the money being spent in American politics is spent on anything worthwhile, that uh, a lot of the money that goes out is wasted. But but you've done so much more work here than I have. And so I want to ask the question this way. If the Koch brothers had never decided to get into politics, they had just been working on cancer research and being living the lives of rich oil billionaires, what do you think would be different about American politics today? I don't think the libertarian movement would be anywhere near as strong as it is in 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 American politics. They are the primary funders of libertarianism in America and I I just think that they have been tremendously influential in spreading that ideology and I think you know you might be able to look at spending on elections and say it often is a waste of money. And you can look at, say, for instance, Tom Steyer spent a lot of money in recent elections and, and has a pretty poor record of wins in, in the various elections. But that's not where I see the influence of the Kochs particularly. It's partly in elections, but that's really a minor part of what they do. They've subsidized an entire ideology and a kind of a conveyor belt that moves far-right extreme ideas into the mainstream. And they've done it in a really systemic way for 40 years, and they have endless amounts of money to do it. They're each worth something like, I, the last I saw was $60 billion is the, about the fortune of, of each David Koch and Charles Koch, which effectively means they can spend it as much as they want on, on anything. And They've really seeded this movement, and it's the ideology, moving that ideology forward, I think, that has has made the huge difference. And in a way, and I look at it as kind of like, um, I mean, we've been talking in the last year since Kellyanne Conway came up with the idea of alternative facts, but long before she gave a name to it, they were creating alternative facts through academia, through think tanks, through grassroots groups that are actually astroturf that look like they're citizens movements that are pushing for policies and they're using data that's that's false on things like climate change and it's confused the whole debate in the country um so i i I think they've had a huge effect and how much of what has separated them from other 
rich men and women who have wanted to influence politics is just the sheer fact of their patience, where so many donors are fickle. Well, I think they've been very smart to take the long view, which you could say is patience. I mean, the thing is, Charles Koch is a true believer. This isn't just a a put-on thing with him. He actually... You know, this is a, a heartfelt crusade for him. So it's he's been working at it for 40 years because it's what he really wants. And and he has an endless amount of money to get it. So I, I think taking the long view really helps. It's not just election by election. It's, it's, it's more of a plan to take over every state legislature. And if it takes 20 years to do it, fine. They'll be there for it. If you have to pour the money in in 2010 so that you can gerrymander those districts when you when the Republican majorities take over in a census year, do it. I always find it really important that both Charles Koch and David Koch are graduates of MIT with multiple graduate degrees in engineering, and they look at American politics like engineers. They're very bright, and they they look at things as systems. And they, they felt that this country didn't believe what they believed in, in 1980 when Charles Koch got David Koch to run on the libertarian ticket as vice president. They lost horribly. They spent a ton of money and got 1% of the vote. And the country was nowhere near believing anything they believed. And they kind of looked at the whole landscape and thought, OK, how do we win? It's not going to be by running for office. We're going to have to change the way the whole country thinks. And they've been at it ever since. When I listen to the way liberals talk about Charles and David Koch, it often sounds like they're sort of the Dr. Evils of politics, but not in a, in a funny way. They've become the – They've become cartoon they've become characters cartoon and characters. you can make yes. them – You can, and they're not they're – not. What do liberals um, get none, wrong about the Kochs? Well, I mean it, it, I think one of the things that's a really big mistake – is to look at them as merely greedy and in it for themselves because they probably wouldn't have been able to be successful if people just thought they were greedy old guys that are trying to make more money for themselves. And they are partly that because this ideology makes them richer by the second. But they wouldn't be able to convince people to come along with them if it was just to make themselves rich. What they've been able to do is paint a a picture of – of an ideology that has appealed to many, many people, which is they've defined the absence of government as liberty. And they're, they're saying what we're going to give you is liberty, to, 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 to run your life your own way, get the government off your back. They've made the government the enemy. They've made regulations the enemy of a strong economy. And, and they've created a very positive vision that a lot of people have bought into. And unless you, unless liberals understand that there's a positive vision there that you're going to have to go to war with and try to paint a counter-positive vision of what liberty means, for instance, liberals might be able to argue liberty actually means the ability for everybody of every income group to fulfill their potential, to get education, not to be impoverished by health care, to be able to have their children reach their career dreams, something like that. It's got to be positive. It's not, you can't really fight the Cokes just with something negative is what I think. Support for this show comes from Slack. You're a growing business and you can't afford to slow down. If anything, you could probably use a few more hours in the day. 
That's why the most successful growing businesses are working together in Slack. Slack is where work happens, with all your people, data, and information in one AI-powered place. Start a call instantly in huddles and ditch cumbersome calendar invites. Or build an automation with Workflow Builder to take routine tasks off your plate. No coding required. Grow your business in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started. Are there funders on the liberal side who you think are equal in might or, if they're not there yet, equal in long-range ambition to the Kochs? I mean, I think the closest they have on the liberal side is probably George Soros, who had a real kind of a unified ideological vision. Much, I mean, then the Kochs have a unified ideological vision. So does Soros. I mean, his his whole – I did a piece about him long before I did a piece about the Kochs. These guys with those huge fortunes that are trying to change American politics are – uh, to me, anyway, very interesting. And Soros is an interesting person. He's now quite old, and I don't think he's probably as big a player, certainly in America, as he used to be. But his idea was of of an open society. He believed in transparency. He believed in getting information and opposing views out in the open. And it was kind of an enlightenment idea he had, too, that if people are given enough information, they'll make the right decisions. So he's, you know, he's poured money into that and a lot of programs that sort of promote civil liberties and democracy, particularly elsewhere around the world at this point. And so he was the closest thing. But um, as I said, he's getting older and he's been, you know, I think he's had probably what I imagine must be a very crushing experience because a lot of his effort has gone into Eastern Europe and into his home country of, of, of Hungary, where it's just turning darker and darker. It's the exact opposite of the Enlightenment. It's kind of the dark ages taking over Hungary. So it feeds your point of view, Ezra, that money doesn't buy you what you want because he's put a lot of money into it and he's not getting what he wants. You know his story better than I do, but my sense of him has always been that he was very committed to an international open democracy agenda that in 2004, roughly, he became very alarmed by George W. Bush here, and that while he has since been a routine funder of liberal causes, he has felt he does not enjoy being a figure in American partisan politics and has been much more comfortable funding things that he feels are transpartisan and often operate here but also operate elsewhere where the Kochs, you know one thing that i had been wondering about as they became more notorious was whether or not the notoriety would drive them from the field that they would not enjoy becoming bogeymen of american politics but it seems to me if anything they have embraced this role for themselves and 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 doubled down and that has seemed to me Again, as somebody who does not primarily cover this as a way in which they're different than, than than what the liberal side has had, where the liberal folks have had a lot more discomfort being identified with actual ongoing partisan politics and operations. Well, that's certainly true. I think it's ex- exactly right about about Soros, and I think he was really stung by some of the criticism of him. And it's been it's been very very some of it's been very personal and ugly, but of course it has been personal and ugly also about the Cokes. And and you're right, they're still players. I don't know that they are embracing their boogeyman-ness, though. 
they certainly are still they're spending like mad. So they're, they're every cycle they're spending more. And in, and just to give a statistic for this the the 2018 race, they've been talking about spending 300 or 400 million in the midterm um, congressional elections, which is just a gigantic amount it's for midterm. Um, it's not just their own; it's their their group of donors that they call their um, investment partners in in politics that are going to do this. They've said. But I think they do care about their image and are not happy that it's been that they've been made to be such such evildoers. It was interesting to me they they actually put a lot of energy into market research to try to figure out why people didn't like them, and they did focus groups and polling, and the research came back with the not shocking finding that the public thought they were greedy. And so they've been working very hard on trying to counter that image. And one of the findings of the research also was that that one of the things they should do is form unlikely alliances. And so they've started really upping the giving they're doing to things like black causes, criminal justice causes. They'd given some in the past, but they're doing it much more publicly now. They were looking for any issue that they believe in as libertarians that overlaps with liberals' issues, and there are some in this kind of Venn diagram. So things like criminal justice reform, and they're taking a much more high-profile role in that and trying to sort of quiet down any um, focus on things like their opposition to doing anything about climate change. Because the Kochs are so ideologically motivated, my understanding in 2016, as Donald Trump took over the Republican Party from from the reporting and, and from things I heard, was that they were quite repulsed by him and saw him as very much a threat to the Republican Party and conservative movement they saw themselves as building. And since he's taken office, his personal behavior aside, he has seemed very bought into their agenda. How would you characterize the relationship or the arc of the relationship between the Kochs and Trump? I think it's it's been fascinating because, as you say, Ezra, that, that in, in 2016, they were very much against Trump. They were putting aside a war chest of $889 million that they were going to spend once there was a Republican nominee to back the Republican. And when that nominee turned out to be Trump, they they withheld that money from him and put it into some of it into uh, state races instead because they were so against him. And I think Charles Koch said that he viewed the choice between Trump and Hillary Clinton as the choice between a heart attack and cancer. And so... Clearly, they were not happy at that particular point. But what what is so interesting is they didn't get the candidate they wanted, but they've gotten the government they want. They've got the administration they want. How did that happen? How did they manage to get so many policies implemented that are exactly what they want, even from a candidate who, who you know, a president who was supposedly not where they were? I think it's a, a testament to the way that they're, they've really bought so much influence, particularly in Congress, but also over, uh, over this administration in terms of, of appointees. I mean, the EPA administrators, uh, Scott Pruitt, is, is one of the people that they've, whose careers they've fostered from way back. 
Pompeo, who is now the Secretary of State and was the director of the CIA, is someone whose career – he was the congressman from Wichita, Kansas. And they used to call him the congressman from Coke. He is their person. Mike Pence – it has been so closely tied to the Cokes for such a long time that when I interviewed Steve Bannon for a piece I did about Mike Pence, Bannon said, of all people, said, I'd be afraid to have Pence as president because he would be the the president that was owned by the Cokes. All around Trump, there are people who are Coke people. You're kidding me. Bannon and said that? He did say it. It's on wow. the record. It's in the I story. Forgot. I read yeah. that story. I've yeah. totally forgotten yeah. that. That no, piece. I mean, and and was and that when weirdly, Bannon was in the administration? Uh, it was when Bannon was in. I think he had just left, or maybe he was, I can't remember if he was in it was or an not. Earlier, he was wow. He was on the rope. But anyway, and 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 just this week, I, I got oddly, Roger Stone of all people tweeted out that if Mike Pence were to run for president in in 2020, he would oppose him because he would be afra- he was afraid that Mike Pence is owned by the Cokes. That's Roger Stone, of all people. So I can understand why people might think, oh, well, this is a liberal conspiracy theory that the Kochs have a lot of influence and that they've bought it, a lot of power in, in America. Take a listen. Listen hard to what, to what Steve Bannon and Roger Stone are saying. These are, not, these are not liberals. These are not Democrats. These are people who are very close in to Republican politics. So how is it that this happened then? If Donald Trump and the Kochs didn't like each other, and Donald Trump has traditionally tried to punish the people he feels opposed him during the primary. If you were a never-Trumper, for instance, you often couldn't get hired once the Trump administration came into power. How is it that such key Koch allies ended up all around Donald Trump. Well, he was so naive. I mean, Donald Trump knew nothing about national politics when he was elected president, basically. Certainly nothing about the who was who in terms of their, you know, who to pick for the administration. And meanwhile, for 40 years, the, the Kochs have been building a, a movement, and the movement is all around him. So they funded the, the Federalist Society. The head of the Federalist Society becomes the advisor on who to pick in it for judicial appointments, and he is closely allied with the Kochs. The transition was filled with people who were allied with the Kochs. It was run by Mike Pence. All around Trump, he was he was surrounded, and I really feel that he had so few of his own ties to people in national politics that it was easy to rely on on these people, and it was the only thing he could really do. Given your understanding of the mechanics of how the Koch brothers and, and also a lot of other funders in American politics have built their influence and built their influence often in a very pre-Citizens United era, when I listen to liberals talk about money in politics, I hear a lot about Citizens United. That is, that has become the thing that you know they could come into power, they would get rid of that right now. If Citizens United and its associated rulings got repealed, do you think that would substantially change how much influence money can buy in politics? Well, I mean, I th- I think money in politics is like. You know, there's sort of a hydraulic theory. It's always going to be pushing its way in, um, and it always has been trying to push its way in before Citizens United and after Citizens United. And what you see, if you look at the sort of the bigger picture, standing back, is there are waves of corruption. It gets to be just untenable. And then there are waves of reform, and there's a crackdown. And for a little while, it's cleaned up. So take a look at the election after Watergate, 1980. 
um, you've got uh, Jimmy Carter running against Ronald Reagan. Nobody even remembers this. They think it's so hopeless to do anything about money and politics. In that election, there was almost no money, private money spent. Both candidates just spent the, the public financed money. And it, it can be done and it has been done. And it can be done again, but it's going to always take a constant, you know, constant uh, monitoring and, and constant reform. At this point, I think it's way out of control. We've gotten to a point where it's, it's, it's absurd how corrupt the American politics is. You know, something's got to be done about it. And certainly overturning Citizens United is one step. It's going to take a lot more than that, though. If you're listening to this conversation, you're thinking, God, this is getting depressing. Wait, wait for what's about to come. I'd like to take a hard turn into torture. <laughs> um, you, you did so much reporting during the Bush administration on America's torture program. What have you thought seeing Gina Haspel get nominated and then confirmed to run the CIA? Uh, all right. Well, I mean, I know that this calls for me to say it's just incredibly depressing and upsetting, and it is partly that. But I'm going to disappoint you. I won't be disappointed. Also, okay. Well, I mean, that is all true, and it's—I don't want to—I mean, I can almost not even dwell on it. But at the same time, I'm going to just try to find a little bit of a silver lining here, which is that in order for her to get confirmed, she had to renounce torture. She had to renounce waterboarding. She had to say it was a mistake and we're not going back there again. And she had to answer some very hard questions about it. And so I like to think that at the very least, all the people who pushed back against the torture program during the Bush years, and there were incredible people who were who were pushing back from John McCain to the ACLU to everything in between, to the FBI agents who wanted to stick with the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, to people within the CIA, to the international community. There were so many people involved in that fight. What you've got now is some consciousness that required Gina Haspel to say, we're not going back there again. Um, so that's the silver lining. The dark side of it is obvious. You know, what kind of what kind of message does this send to the rest of the world to put somebody at the head of the CIA who literally, you know, wrote the cable saying we need to destroy the evidence of waterboarding. And why did they destroy that evidence? Because everybody knew, I know from my own reporting, the word they used was that if people saw those videotapes of what a waterboarding really looked like, they, the, the word they used was it would be unsurvivable. The reaction around the world would be so horrible. There would be, they were afraid there'd be riots, anti-American riots, and, and the U.S. public would turn against it too. So to put somebody involved in destroying that kind of evidence in charge is, is, is not a happy moment. But I am glad at least that um, she had to answer a lot of questions and she had to say, we're not going back there. Do you think that America institutionally or small d democratically learned anything from its period returning to being a nation that tortured? Well, I do, I think that the 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 people at the CIA certainly did, and at the FBI, and I think in the military. I mean, it's it's funny because 
the they they are the sort of these conservative organizations that you would think would be the kinds of organizations that might embrace these hard measures but they're actually the the places where there's the greatest resistance to it the public itself is still not that educated i think about it and sort of has this kind of rah rah knee jerk um feeling about it to some extent no it's not it's i, I it's split um people the more people know about torture the more they're against it but there's sort of a, a kind of a dumbed down version that comes from shows like 24 on on TV and and you know the, the the idea that all you have to do is like take out a hammer and you're going to get the truth from someone which is really not what happens so i, I read a oral history you actually did about your reporting on torture and, and you talked about how you interviewed the head of the health division at the pentagon and i don't even know what the head of the health division at the pentagon does so i'd like to hear that too but that he almost offhandedly gave you the tip that allowed you to Google and break open the whole question of how did America develop its torture program? And I want to see if you could retell that story. Yeah, sure. I mean, it was it was almost an accident, really. I was talking to him. I was interviewing him because I had noticed that there were psychologists who were working down in Guantanamo for the military. And I wondered who sends in psychologists to do the interrogations and you know is this an organized program of of abuse or what and and so i got the head of the health division to let me come in and talk to him and he said oh sure I said, you know, where does this come from? He said, well, there's some, there's an acronym for it. There's a program. It, it said something to do with survival and evasion. So I, I went back and I, I got online and started Googling around and found that there's a program called SEER, Survival, Evasion, Resistance, and Escape. It was a very obscure program in the past that studied how people survive torture. And, and and how they can keep their heads together while they're undergoing it and then resist it and then escape. And it was a sort of a repository within the U.S. government of everything that we've learned about torture programs around the world. And it turned out what happened was after 9-11, this program, instead of being used for defensive reasons, became an offensive program. And everything terrible that we learned about other people's, other countries' torture programs, the worst ones in the world, became kind of the, the playbook for what we were going to do to U.S.-held detainees. It broke open the whole story to me. I mean, at that point, what we were being told in this country was that what was going on in places like Abu Ghraib was just a few rotten apples at the bottom of the barrel, if you remember the phrase that was being used by President Bush at the time, that there wasn't an organized program. And it was just a few bad actors. But there was an organized program. And that's what I learned from that interview, just accidentally. Has it been strange to you in this era to see the intelligence agencies become the deep state to the Trump administration, semi-heroic to liberals, often you know, attacked by Fox News? Has, has the politics around the FBI and the CIA and, and, and the rest of it right now come as a surprise? Yeah, completely. I mean, it's like you've you know you've gone through some kind of rabbit hole in Alice in Wonderland or something. Suddenly, the liberals are all defending you know the the independent councils, and the independent council was the bad guy during the Clinton years. But I think it's it's something more complicated than just hypocrisy and partisanship. I think 
what I see it as is we've got a, a few independent centers of power in this country that can put a check on the executive branch. And I think people see the Justice Department and the rule of law and the FBI and, you know, the independent counsel in this particular case as the only checks on what they fear is a, you know, a a runaway dangerous executive. And so that's why they've switched sides on it. I I wake up a lot of days on this and and I feel very deeply disoriented. I mean, if you had come to me in 2008 or 9 and you said to me, okay, in 10 years – liberals are going to see the CIA as an important check on (laughs) the executive's power and Republicans are going to see WikiLeaks as a key organization working to make the world a better place through leaking documents that that harm those in power. I, I would not have known what to think about that. I mean, have you been surprised by the evolution of WikiLeaks in this period tour, or just what do you think about it? I feel that we probably didn't really know, and I still don't really know that much about what the motives are behind the people running WikiLeaks. I think it is very disorienting. And I still think, even though I generally have a, a very high estimation of Robert Mueller, I still think that independent councils with unlimited budgets and unlimited time to investigate are a a scary aspect of our sort of criminal justice system. And I've met Mueller. I've, I've interviewed people who've worked with him. I hear he has tremendously high integrity, but it takes that to keep it within limits, I think, and keep it within bounds that are acceptable. You also did the the best article on Christopher Steele and the Steele dossier. When you came out of doing that piece, did you find yourself, given where the public conversation was and given where the level of alarm is, particularly on the left, did you find yourself more or less alarmed than you had been going in about what leverage or aid Russia might have over or have given the Trump campaign? I went into it with a lot of doubts about whether there really had been a serious amount of collusion of some sort between Russia and the the Trump campaign. I mean, I was open to the possibility, but I I wasn't at all convinced. Um, And I try to stick with the facts. Um, And as I got more into the reporting in that case, I became much more convinced that there are a lot of uh, ties there, too many ties there to not add up to something. I can't tell whether it doesn't go beyond Manafort, but there's just so – there are so many connections there. There's a narrative that makes sense on that side and saying that there is collusion or there was an effort at it at least – And there's really no narrative of innocence on the other side that I can see. This to me has been has been also the the biggest thing on this that I no longer can tell an innocent story for a long time. I thought I could. Um, But even now, the best story I can tell that ends with there not being I want to say they're not being collusion. It's a story where people were colluding or doing something quite close to it. 
and just didn't quite realize why that was so wrong to do, that they just understood Russia or some of these players as an interest group like the Koch brothers or the Heritage Foundation or a union or whatever it might have been. And they just are political amateurs and, and didn't understand that they had crossed a line that you can't cross. But it's become extremely difficult for me to understand how you look at all this and tell a story now that uh, doesn't end with pretty senior members of the Trump administration having done something that within the boundaries of American politics as we have come to know them is far, far, far over the line. Well, I mean, and, and it's it's telling that they're not even trying to tell a story of innocence. I mean, they tried at one point to say that the meeting with, with the Russians at Trump Tower was about adoption. So they came up with a lie. It was ridiculous. It fell apart right away. Um, and, and they came up with, a, you know, it was a cover story. But they have not, instead of trying to explain what they were doing and why they were doing it, they've, they've yet to say that. And instead what they're doing is attacking the investigators and trying to create a complete smokescreen and a false narrative that the investigators are the evildoers here. And, um, and that's why I really enjoyed working on the, on the Chris Steele story because the the lies that were coming out basically from Devin Nunes and, and, and the Republicans who were working to defend Trump, the lies were getting a life of their own. And it was really important, I thought, at that moment to try to get the facts back out again. It feels like it's almost like a fight day by day to sort of get the facts out to the public and see if they can at least duel with the lies because the, the false narratives are being spun out so – powerfully, both by the White House and the Republicans in Congress and this whole sort of media apparatus that they've got with Fox, that you really feel you've got to engage with it constantly. You were talking earlier about Kellyanne Conway and alternative facts. And I think a lot about, I think that line has become a subject of, of mockery for a lot of people. But I've come to think there's something very insightful in it, which is I believe that a lot of us have had in our head, explicitly or implicitly for a long time, the metaphor of politics as a debate. And the thing that you're trying to do in politics is win an argument. And I think what Conway understands, what Trump understands, is that I don't want to call it a war because I don't mean it, it includes physical violence, although obviously in, in some places out sometimes it does, but that you don't need to win the debate. What you need is to give the people who are on your side something to believe whether or not that thing to believe is responsive or would like you know be scored as a good argument by a judge it doesn't really matter they just need their own narrative and that narrative can be orthogonal it just needs to be complete and the orthogonal but complete narrative of a deep state staffed by Obama era holdovers and traitors that are coming together to try to destroy the Trump administration is a it is a cohesive theory of the case, even if it does nothing to refute any of the findings that have come out of the Mueller investigation, does nothing to explain any of the strange meetings, does nothing to put aside the facts. And to me, one of the profound and scary lessons of this era is that this was never a debate. This is not about who, uh, you know, who is a better argument. They just they just need enough people 
And, you know, given how many folks do not want to see the Trump administration go down, they, they have them. They just need to give enough people something to believe so that they just don't – so that there's no space for them to believe the other side. They're almost just filling the cognitive space that might otherwise be filled by Mueller uh, revelations. And it seems to me that's enough. But that's – you're saying that you can give people false propaganda and that gives them give, gives them something to say and something – to stand on. But I mean, so you're saying tactically there's some wisdom in what she was saying in terms of how to manipulate American politics, give them alternative facts and they'll, they'll, you know, it'll keep them quiet and keep them on your side. But, but, but the reality is, I mean, maybe that works as a tactic politically, but I, again, I'm, 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 I'm tough on, on this. What was she really talking about? She was talking about was the crowd at the Trump inaugural bigger than the crowds at the Obama inaugurals? And the fact was the crowds were smaller for Trump. And there isn't two sides of that. Oh, I agree. And so it's a, there is no alternative fact. Uh, an alternative fact deliberately told, as Ursula Gwynn said, is a lie. And what she's saying is – we can give people lies, and we'll lie to people if it works for us. And I, I, you know, and I think for those of us who've spent our entire careers talking to everybody and looking at every shred of evidence be, to get what is tr- the closest version you can get to the truth at any given moment, that is a, just not an acceptable theory. I mean, maybe it works for Trump for now, but it it is the end of democracy if people can't figure out what's true and what's a lie. I think that is a good place to close. So let me ask you the question we always use at the end of the podcast, which is, speaking of things that are not lies, what are three books you've read that you would recommend to the audience? Um, Let's see. Of the books that... Okay. One of the books that for me was really helpful in in working on dark money was Winner Take All Politics. It's by Jacob Hacker and Paul Pearson. And I liked it because it goes back to the 70s and explains that it's actually in the 70s when politics changed a lot. We thought nothing was happening that much at the time other than sideburns but and disco, but actually it, it wasn't the 80s when it all began, really. It was the 70s. So that's, that's a great book. One of my favorite books, and it's really short, explaining sort of, it's a fable about America and money, is F. Scott Fitzgerald's story, um, it's a sort of a novella, and it's a diamond as big as the Ritz. It's so much fun. You should read that. And another fantastic book, if you really want to see the antecedents to what, how we got at the, into this moment where money so rules American politics, is Invisible Hands by um, the historian Kim Phillips Fine. It's wonderfully written, and it explains sort of the early devotion to Hayek and, and and how sort of big business money really started to shape American politics. Jane Mayer, thank you very much. Great to be with you, Ezra. Thanks. Thank you to Jane Mayer. Thank you to Bridget Armstrong for setting up and engineering this episode. To my producer, Jillian Weinberger, The Ezra Klein Show is a Vox Media podcast production, and we'll be back podcasting and producing next week.